0: You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad. My whole being rejoices and my flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are the pleasures forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. Father, we pray this morning that you would show us your truth and that your truth would set us free. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. may be seated. One of my favorite books and therefore stories as a child that I remember distinctly and often having read to me was The Little Engine Who Could. I wonder if you, I gather many of you, would be familiar with The Little Blue Engine Who Could. It's a historic children's book. It's a classic children's book that essentially has one theme centered around one refrain throughout this story, and the refrain that is so poignant and salient in The Little Engine Who Could is simply the phrase, I think I can. I think I can. I think I can. Of course, the story is centered around one train that needs help getting over the tracks and a myriad of other trains or little, or other engines uh, that choose to not pull this load and the rest of this train over the track. And then the least of all, the little blue engine, the little engine who could decides that he will do it. And as he attaches to the rest of the train and the rest of the cars to be pulled up and over the tracks, he says this refrain, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. It's a story of optimism. It's a story of grit and resolve. It's a story of confidence. It's also a story that speaks to the power of words. We look for change and transformation in a lot of ways in life. We look for diets to change us. We look for exercise to change us. We look to our bank accounts to change us. We look to our wardrobes to change us. We look to our relationships to change us. And all of these things actually have that power. But something I want us to consider this morning is that words change us. Literally, that which we say forms us. It actually, there actually is a difference between thinking something and saying it, for better or worse. Words reveal things about us. Eugene Peterson says this, A sentence of words is a marvelous thing. Words reveal. We are presented with a reality. With truth that makes our world larger, our relations richer, words get us out of ourselves and into a responsive relation with a larger world of time and space, things and people. Speaking of childhood, you would remember, and I don't hear this phrase that often these days, but the principle still holds true, sticks and stones will break my bones, but what? Words will never hurt me. Is that true? Not at all. In fact, every one of us to this day, old and young, still live haunted by words that hurt us. But the flip side of that is words heal us. Words have power. Words can change us. Specifically words of truth rooted in confidence. And in many ways, that's what's going on throughout the book of Psalms. The psalmist are saying words repetitively. The psalmist are saying words poetically. The psalmist are singing words. It has also been said that nothing transforms us more by that which we sing. That's why song choice and worship is so important. But words can not only hurt, words heal. And so what we have today in Psalm 16 is David. On no particular occasion that any scholar can identify, but David speaking words of confidence about the Lord to his own soul. And once again, this is a consistent paradigm, not only in David's life throughout the Psalms, but a consistent paradigm throughout the Psalms. And I think it's important for us to realize this this morning because I think it's easy for us to look at the scriptures and particularly to look at the Psalms and to hear such apparently robust belief and firm commitment and, and beautiful truth laced with mercy and grace and have the thought, I wish I believed those things. I wish my life embodied those things. Well, here's the secret. The psalmist didn't always believe these things either. And the psalmist's life didn't always embody these things either. But the psalmist repetitively went to these truths, to these songs, to these hymns, to these poems, to recite truth repetitively, confidently, not dissimilar to, I think I can I think I can, I think I can, which is a side note, as a side note is a, a terrible theology with regard to a relationship with God, but that's not the point. The point is words are powerful. And so what we see this morning is David speaking truths about God to his soul, and that's what we need. We need to speak truth about God to our souls and then... To God as well. The main truth that I want us to reflect upon in Psalm 16 this morning that David speaks to his soul about God is a proclamation of confidence and trust in God alone. Psalm 16 is a proclamation of trust, a display of confidence in God alone. It's not easy for us to have confidence. It's not easy for us to trust in God alone. It's not easy to have an unwavering commitment as we live in a real world that's really broken as we are real people who are also really broken. Frederick Buechner is a fantastic 20th century Christian author that was regularly written in a wide number of publications, wrote books that were regularly on the New York Times bestseller list but was explicitly a Bible believing Christian. And he says this about commitment. And I say this to keep in tension this proclamation in Psalm 16 of confidence and trust in God, commitment in God. And then Beekner speaks to the struggle we have to keep that commitment. Listen, if you tell me Christian commitment is a kind of thing that has happened to you once and for all, like some kind of spiritual plastic surgery, I say to you, go. Go. You're either pulling the wool over your own eyes or trying to pull it over mine. Every morning, you should wake up in your bed and ask yourself, can I believe this all over again today? No, better still, don't ask it until you've read the New York Times, till after you've studied that daily record of the world's brokenness and corruption, which should always stand side by side with your Bible. Then ask yourself, if you can believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ again for that particular day. That's the world we live in, right? A world where we struggle to have confident commitment and trust in God. Because there's just so much in our own lives and so much in others' lives that threatens that confidence and that commitment. But the psalmist speaks these words of confidence And commitment this morning. And I want us to unpack that confidence and commitment in two primary ways. I want us to see his loyalty to God, and then I want us to see, secondly, how blessings flow from the loyalty. Another way to say it would be we're going to look at David's faithfulness, and then in response to that, we're going to look at the Lord's faithfulness. Let's begin with loyalty and this concept of loyalty in Psalm 16. And we'll spend a little more time on loyalty than we will the second point. Blessing. We see this in the first six verses, Psalm 16 is essentially cut in half, verses 1 through 6 and verses 7 through 11 as the, as the psalmist, David in this case, proclaims confidently his trust in God by expressing his loyalty. You see this specifically in verse 2 when David says and proclaims, I have no other God but you. I have no good apart from you. And then immediately, he gets to a challenge. So he affirms, calling him his Lord, you are my Lord, I have no good apart from you. And then in verse 4, the psalmist says, under this idea of loyalty and our challenge to be loyal, he speaks of the temptation to be disloyal. As he says, the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. The inherent truth in verse 4 is, we have a proclivity to run after other gods. And the interesting thing about this psalm is this. The psalmist is reflecting upon others around him who were what they called in their day syncretist. And this is not just a big word, it's an important concept. Syncretists were both and people when it came to religion. They were a modern-day pluralist. And so the people that David is speaking of in verse 4 weren't so clear black and white where they either said, "I completely reject the God of the Bible and the God of Israel and I completely embrace these other gods." No, they were more hybrid in their religion. They were pluralistic in their in their religion. They were syncretist. So in verse 4, the people that David speaks of did to some degree believe in the God of Israel, in the God of the Bible. And they believed in other gods too. Does that sound familiar? It's very tempting to hold one belief that might be in historic Christianity while at the same time bring in other beliefs that might service us better at that time. It's a complex thing why we run after other gods. It's essentially the root of sin. The Bible speaks about this as idolatry. The Bible also speaks about sin as it being absurd. And so while we can never have a perfect pathology of sin, it is important for us to unpack what some of the reasons are that drive us away from God and drive us to other gods. And surely one of the main reasons that we are driven away from God and driven to other gods that is idols in our life, is to decrease our sorrow. I've heard one preacher say, essentially what we do with idolatry in life is, we have created in our mind little hells, like H-E-L-L. Whatever hell is to you. Hell is to you to not have friends. Hell is to you to not have the right clothes. Hell is to you to not have the right number in your bank account. Hell is to you to be overweight. Whatever hell is to you, you create some notion of what hell is, and those things create sorrow within our lives. And then what you do is, or what we do, is we manufacture little messiahs to take us out of our hell. Right. So we experience these sorrows through the brokenness of life, and then with those sorrows, what we start to do is manufacture what Tim Keller would refer to as counterfeit gods, that would take us out of our experience of hell into an experience of life to relieve our sorrow. But here's the problem. It doesn't work. Psalm 16 verse 4 is a succinct testimony to the folly of idolatry because it says you choose idols to bring relief from sorrow when in reality those idols simply Compound your sorrow. I had the privilege early in my ministry life prior to going to graduate school of being a youth pastor at a church in Memphis and we were a church plant and we're about to build our second building. And this second building was going to be a youth and children's space, and I was the youth minister, so I got to sit on this building committee. And it was a fascinating experience. Uh, It was a good mix of different people from the church. There were people representing the children's ministry, and me and others representing the youth ministry, and some key leaders from our board that were on the um, committee as well. And then one particular man named David Harbour ran the whole committee, he actually was a commercial developer, and so it made sense for him to be, he was an elder in the church, and that was his business, and so these meetings were pretty fascinating as, you know, different ideas got thrown out about what the building ought to be like, and what we ought to do here, and what we ought to do there, and how needs could be serviced in this area, and one of the things that the leader, David, would constantly remind the committee of is, we have a budget, and so those were all, he didn't talk a lot, um, but when he talked, people listened. And I can remember one point we were getting towards the end of our business as a committee and, you know, they were going to break ground on this building and we were right up against budget. Um, but there was a furor in the room that night about different things that we ought to be doing. And, and this type of thinking, which I'm sure none of you can relate with, started to ensue. Well, while we're doing this, we might as well do that. Well, while we're doing these things, let's just go ahead and do that, as if, like, since you're doing one thing just to tack something else on, it's, like, free, right? I mean, since the plumber's here anyway, and so people, like, and it was all exciting. I confess, I even became a part of this. And then at one moment, in the midst of a lot of activity, our leader, who was a quiet man and once again didn't say much, spoke up and said, and while we're at it, we might as well just go bankrupt. silence. And then the sober reality of needing to cut all the things that we had gotten excited about. That statement and that experience reminds me of verse 4. We can get going in life. We can get manufacturing these counterfeit false messiahs and gods in the midst of our sorrows. thinking, well, while we're doing this, we might as well do this. And while we're doing this, and then we get going with this thing, and then it's just this. And then it's one look and then it's one drink, and then it's one pill, and then it's one more, and then it's one more, and the next thing we know, interest compounds. And the things that we looked to relieve us of sorrow have actually made us bankrupt. But the psalmist, by God's grace, is saying, that's not me. There are those who run after other gods, and those who run after other gods, their sorrows will increase. But interestingly enough, those who are implicitly loyal to God in the psalmist affirmation of this will experience things like words that we see in this psalm. Satisfaction, delight, good, pleasantness. Interestingly enough, all the things that we long for that we seek to manufacture other gods for Like, we turn away from God in order to experience satisfaction and delight and goodness and pleasantness. But idols lie. They make promises that they can't keep. And idolatry is a big deal, by the way. Peter Kreeft, who is a Christian philosophy professor at Notre Dame, says, Atheism is not the opposite of Christianity. Idolatry is. Atheism is not the opposite of Christianity idolatry is. It's taking those things, many of which are good, and making them gods. And when we make them gods, our sorrows will increase. Another way of saying it is, it can always get worse. It really can always get worse. Before we move on, it seems appropriate to make a little bit of application here, and this won't be the last time we talk about idolatry because the Scriptures, particularly the Old Testament, is laced with references to idolatry. It speaks of it in a myriad of ways, but it's a consistent theme throughout the scriptures. And in fact, in many ways, idolatry is simply synonymous with sin. Because you see, we can make idols out of anything. Idolatry is simply putting something at the center of our life, idolatry is simply putting something ahead of God. John Calvin, in fact, said, Our hearts, you know what they are? Idol factories that never stop producing. So before we move on, it seems like we might want to ask a few x-ray questions with regard to identifying some idols in our life. And I just mentioned these for you to reflect upon, and then we can revisit this in weeks ahead, as once again, this will not be the last time the scriptures speak about idolatry. But a few questions just for you to ruminate on here in the middle of the sermon. What consumes most of your time? What do you think about most? You daydream about what? Your checkbook or credit card statement is grouped into what primary, primary spending categories? Your greatest fear is... You feel most joy when you hate, what? You worry about, you pursue, what? Blank keeps me going. I find the most comfort in... Life is only worth living if I have. Life is not worth living if I don't have blank. Just a few side x-ray questions to reveal the counterfeit gods that we daily and consistently manufacture within our hearts to relieve our sorrows that end up compounding our sorrows, with the illusion that they would be enough. In 2016, Jim Carrey was presenting at the Golden Globes, and as he was walking up to actually give the award to someone else, they were introducing him, and the announcer said, and now I present to you two-time Golden Globe winner, Jim Carrey. Jim Carrey, right? Ace Ventura, Dumb and Dumber, right? Classics classics, uh, highly quotable films, um, but let's, let's not get off the subject too much uh, at the moment. And so Jim Carrey, as he hears two-time Golden Globe winner, it's as if it strikes him in an interesting way, and off the cuff, he says this, and then was quoted um, repetitively later about what I'm about to read to you. Thank you. I am two-time Golden Globe winner Jim Carrey. You know... When I go to sleep at night, I'm not just a guy going to sleep. I'm two-time Golden Globe winner, Jim Carrey. When I dream, I don't just dream any old dream. I dream about being three-time Golden Globe winner, Jim Carrey. Because then I would be enough. It would finally be true. And I could stop this terrible search. For what I know ultimately won't fulfill me. Jim Carrey said that at the Golden Globes live in 2016. And the psalmist resonates with that same truth. Which leads us to these last couple verses as the psalmist continues with this loyalty in verses 5 and 6. The Lord is my chosen portion. It's another way of saying the Lord is enough. Jim Carrey saying, My success will never be enough. And the psalmist is saying, Lord, you are enough. You're my portion. You're my cup. You're my lot. And the boundaries have fallen for me in pleasant places. I want to reflect upon this before we move briefly into loyalty leading to blessing. I told you I wanted to spend a little bit more time. On loyalty, and I want to unpack this idea of boundaries because I think verse six is such a beautiful and an interesting verse. And there's something about this verse, unless I'm totally reading us all wrong. When we hear it and when we read it, there's a sense of yes. But what does that mean? Like we want verse six to be true that the boundaries have been created for us and the boundary lines have fallen for us in pleasant places. And we think, whatever that is, that's what I want. The first thing we need to see about this is boundaries are good. Francis Schaefer talks about this tension between form and freedom. There's a historical study, and I, I gather that this study has been done through some research that I have done. This study has been done in a myriad of ways throughout different schools of psychology. Some of you might have heard it referred to before about children on a playground. And children, being on a playground with no boundary fence around it, seemingly totally free, preschool children with their teacher on a playground, potentially on a busy road, no fence around it, no boundaries, all freedom, a very, like, you know, 2018 millennial thing to do. We don't need a fence around a preschool playground. We're free. Psychological studies have been done. When children go out with their teacher, With no fence. You know what they do on that playground? They huddle all around their teacher. And they stay together. Because they're not free to move and to play. The flip side of that study is. Putting children preschool age. With their teacher on a playground. Surrounded by a fence. Ugly. Fence. Boundary. Constraining. You know what it does? Causes them to run wild. To have great freedom within the form of the fence. To be free, yet ultimately bound. And being bound actually makes us ultimately free. And here's the truth. Nobody is unbound. We can live under an illusion to think that we're not bound, let's say, by a system of belief. But everybody is bound and governed by some system of belief. Implicitly or explicitly. Atheists themselves will tell you that they are believers. Their belief is they don't believe in God, but that's a belief. And therefore, that's a boundary. We all live within boundaries. And what the psalmist is saying is the boundaries that God has given me have given me great pleasantness and freedom. So here's the big question. What are the boundaries? Like, We're drawn to verse 6, and so then we're also drawn to ask the question, hey, just, this is great. Looking for pleasantness, looking for joy, looking for freedom. Can you tell me what these boundaries are? Confession, I've always assumed they are God's precepts and His laws. That's what gives us freedom. Upon further study, that's not what the boundaries are in verse 6. Verse 6 is a reference to Old Testament land and inheritance, And every scholar I read commenting on verse 6 says the boundaries that are referred to in verse 6, are you ready? Is your whole life. There's not specific boundaries to be found within our lives that create pleasantness. The psalmist is saying because God is good, because God is powerful, because God wisely guides with His provision, your whole entire life by God's intention, is intended to be a pleasant place. The boundaries are not something that are elusive. The boundaries are not something we've got to go searching for. The boundaries are not certain hoops that must be jumped through. The boundaries in Psalm 16 verse 6 are your life, which is freeing in and of itself. What that means is, God has created a pleasant place for you. And pleasant, of course, is not synonymous with no pain. God has created a pleasant place for you. You know what that place is? Your life. The psalmist declares loyalty, and then here in the end, we see that there is blessing in this loyalty. There is blessing in finding our hope in God. There's blessing in seeing our life as a pleasant place that God ordains and provides us connection and life with Him. What is that blessing specifically? Look at verses 7 through 11. We see that blessing specifically outlined in counsel. When we ally our hearts and our minds, truly, not perfectly, no one can do it perfectly, when we ally, our hearts and our minds towards God, he instructs us and he counsels us like a wise father. He also stabilizes us. I don't know about you, but I could use more stability in my life. And the psalmist says, loyalty and attachment to God is a stabilizing presence in the midst of the sea and the waves that life throws at us. God is a staying, stabilizing presence. He's like a moor for a boat that we attach to and that stabilizes us. Yeah, when you're moored, you still experience waves, but guess what? You're not going anywhere. And in many ways, that's the stabilizing presence that loyalty to God provides. Another blessing that is provided, not only... That stability, but there's this sense of holistic health. Do you see this? And I love this. In verse 9, the psalmist reflects. And see, God is seeking redemption holistically within us. That's why He actually asks us to love Him with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Because He meets us in our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And this verse shows us that a blessing through loyalty to God is that our heart is glad. Look at verse 9. That our soul rejoices and that our body is secure. A glad heart, a rejoicing soul, and a secure body. And then ultimately there's this final blessing in this text. Verse 10. So we are blessed by the stability God provides. We are blessed by the holistic health that God provides through that loyalty. We are blessed by the counsel that God provides as we are uh, responsively loyal to him, by the way. Like the psalmist is loyal to God because God first and foremost was loyal to him. Another thing that would be important to say is this psalm is recounting ways that we can be obedient, but you've got to hear this. There is no merit in obedience because we can never be obedient enough. There is blessing in our obedience, and that's what the psalm is talking about. That we receive blessings, that's what we're talking about right here, through being obedient, but our obedience can never secure our relationship to God. Obedience is never going to merit a relationship with God. The only thing that secures a relationship to God is Christ's obedience, not ours. But the psalmist knows that, and he's trusted in that, And as a result of living within Christ's obedience, he now is living a life of faithful obedience, which is expressed in loyalty, which is then followed by blessing. But then the final blessing, he's instructed, he's stabilized, he's got holistic health, and then the final blessing is he's not abandoned. And this is what we all long for, actually. We long in this life to not be abandoned, and whether we would admit it or not, because I know it's kind of unpopular to say that we're afraid of death, but everybody to some degree struggles with the question, will we, be aban- will we be abandoned in the grave? And the psalmist says, no. And then the question is, why not? And the answer is, what Peter, believe it or not, tells us in Acts chapter 2, verses 24 through 31. I'm going to read it to you. You can look it up later. But it's Peter quoting Psalm 16. So the psalmist is saying the ultimate blessing is that God will not abandon me in the grave. God will not leave me in the pits of Sheol. And then Peter expounds upon this. And Peter in Acts chapter 2, verses 24 through 31 says, the reason God will not abandon you is because he abandoned Jesus. Listen to Acts chapter 2, verses 24 through 31. God raised him up, loosening the pains of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says, in Psalm 16, concerning Jesus, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I, not, that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let the Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life, and you will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he, David, foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This is the ultimate blessing, that God will not abandon us through Christ's loyalty and our faith on behalf of Christ's loyalty, because... On our behalf, Christ took what we deserved, which was abandonment from God. So we never would experience that. And that's the ultimate blessing that we have. And therefore gives us the confidence and security to live in this world. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word here. We thank you for your guidance and your instruction. We thank you, most of all, Jesus, for your loyalty. You did not run after other gods. And therefore, your sorrows, as a result of running after other gods, did not multiply. Your sorrows actually did multiply because we ran after other gods. We are grateful for you taking our punishment. We are grateful for you being abandoned so we never would have to be. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.